This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. card carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Uh, Just next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Saadi, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm very good. Nice and uh, chilly, but uh, good. It's a great day, and it's actually a very exciting time in sports, and lots of sports going on at this time of year. It, it is, although uh, my favorite is still, uh, what, about 60 days to pitchers and catchers Well, we report. do have a baseball topic to talk <laughs> about. Um, there's a couple things that caught my eye in sports. This is, you know, as everyone knows that listens to us here on Wharton Moneyball, the first half hour of the show, we talk about the world of sports and what's happened, obviously, from a statistical perspective. We're lucky to have two guests uh, in the 8.30 and the 9 o'clock hour. Then, of course, in the last half hour, Adi and I will be making our Moneyball matchup picks and just kind of our wrap up on the week. So actually, the first thing, I want to compliment um, the field of analytics, Adi. You do? I do. And here's why. So I was The watch- general field or the sports analytics? Sports, sports analytics. analytics. Okay. So I was watching, um, not that I, surprising to any of our listeners, I was watching the NFL pregame on ESPN last weekend. And, you know, they have five people in studio, former players, et cetera, et cetera, and a host. And one of the former players, Matt Hasselbeck, been in the NFL for 15, 16 years, quarterback in the league, backup quarterback most of the time, but also started some of the time, made a comment about analytics on the air that said, um, you know, wow, you know, I'm not really an analytics guy, but when the pressure's on, you know, you have to go with your gut at times, et cetera, et cetera. And so I tweeted to Matt Hasselbeck while he was on the air, um, Wharton Moneyball disagrees exactly when the moments are big is when you need to know the information and the data. And so while he was on the air, Matt Hasselbeck tweeted back to me and said, keep the information on analytics coming, which was really nice of him to do. So all I'm commenting on is analytics has gotten to a place where it was discussed on ESPN. It was discussed on why it's hard in the moment for coaches to rely on analytics. And my retort to him was, but that's exactly when you need the information. I'm not saying do exactly what the analytics says, but you need to know what the statistics says the right thing to do are. And he was open-minded about it, which I was impressed by. Well, what's most important is that you have to change a culture and that culture can't happen unless it becomes a central piece of the decision-making process. So I've been, I watched a, a few NFL games, more, uh, maybe three or four this weekend, which is actually quite a, a few for me. Um, and one of the things that, that, that I can easily judge and measure is the decision-making on fourth downs. And I have the chart. I understand it. I've looked at it. I've done a lot of a bunch of the analysis with it. And what appears to me is that they don't follow it even remotely. And it's been out there for so long. And and the question is why? And is it does it have to do with the Hasselbeck comment about the gut, the intuition, and they still go with that, or does it have to do with the conservatism of just staying the way they've been for such a long time and and the asymmetric loss, which is induced by doing something different? Right. Just so people know, when Adi says asymmetric loss, of course, you know, kind of. You're the hero if you go for it on fourth down and make it. If you don't, 
all the eyes go on you, and in some sense, the size of the loss is greater than right. the so size the, of the, the game. The idea is that when, you, when it works out, people like think of it as, oh, maybe you got lucky, you got a positive outcome there, but it's not balanced by the negative outcome of doing something different on the, on the downside, and that's the asymmetry. And asymmetry forces you to avoid that, that downside <laughs> loss, even though in expectation, it's the good thing to do. Yeah, so what Adi's pointing out is actually a really great point for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, um, which is... If all you were looking at was which one maximizes the expected score, you would go for it on fourth down in many, many, many situations. Or, or even win probability. I mean, I, or, I'm sorry. Not, I didn't mean just the expected about, what score. What I'm talking about is the, is the community wrath that comes down to your, your but job. But that's the point. Right, yeah. I was trying to point yeah. out the difference between what I'll call expected utility and right. expected winning, which is the coach might not be taking a weighted average of win-loss probabilities. He may be taking a weighted average of the utility, the utility. of winning and losing for this decision, and that could come out negative, even though it's the right thing to do right, from a win share probability. So, so for example, just to just throw it out, fourth and one, you're supposed to go for go for it on fourth and one everywhere on the field. Well, that's a perfect segue, Adi. To, this is actually a big, if we had a gong, maybe our Deion Simpkins has a big gong he can put up for us. <laughs> this is the biggest money ball moment that has ever happened in the NFL. The biggest NFL moment. Thank you, Deion Simpkins, our associate producer and sound engineer. <laughs> that was amazing. The biggest mistake ever made by an NFL coach happened this, this last Sunday. The so, biggest biggest decision-making mistake. Correct. So okay. let, me, let me tell you the scenario, Adi, and you tell me what you would do in the similar situation. And again, by the way, this would be a great thing for our listeners that want to call in. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. I'm here with my co-host this morning, professor of statistics and friend, Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, what big statistical mistakes do you see in life, in sports, etc.? Please call Call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So, the Denver Broncos were playing the Cleveland Browns this last weekend. Okay, two actually two actual teams two that were teams, still fighting right? yep. mid level teams, yep. teams that were fighting for playoff spots. I'll give you this scenario, and you just tell me what you would do. The Denver Broncos were trailing seventeen to thirteen, so down four points with four minutes thirty nine seconds left in the game. Okay, they only had one timeout left. I should also tell you, they're fourth and one at the Cleveland six-yard line. What do you they're do? They're trailing 17 to 13. They're trailing 17 you to... go for it. Correct. Well, what part of go for it all the time on fourth, on fourth and one doesn't apply now? <laughs> Nothing. So he kicks the field goal. You're kidding. No. Now, let me tell you what happened to the win probability. Again, this was this has been looked at now. They're down 17 to 13. I get it. He goes, I trust my defense. I, I, Adi, we're both staring at us. For those people that aren't in the radio oh station with God. us. So let me tell you what happened to the win probability. If he <laughs> goes for it, if Denver goes for it, the win share probability, I'm, I'm rounding. The win probability. Win probability. Okay, yeah. 60% goes up to 60%. If they go to, go for it, they have a 60% chance of winning the game. Not going. Mm-hmm. And kicking the field goal, 26%. Wow. This one play costs 33% in terms of win probability. And, and it was decision consi- and not the outcome. One thing our listeners outcome, should understand, outcomes can pr- produce enormous, enormous right. changes in win probability. That is correct. I'm Decisions. The decision. Incredible. It was, it, this was studied <laughs> by about five or six different companies, and it was determined in the history of the NFL, it was the biggest decision mistake of any 
that had ever been made in terms well, of changing terms of the win probability. win probability. In terms yeah. of absolute win probability. So... Although I, I, one would, one might, one might quibble a little bit and say that a, a maybe going from a twenty percent down to a zero percent, in some sense, is a stupider idea than than going from say sixty to twenty seven. Even though in absolute value, that's a that's a smaller right. percentage ga- gap, which is one of the one of the difficulties in measuring pro- things on a probability scale. Well, maybe we could just talk about that a little bit, but let's do that in just one second. <laughs> um, why was your gut reaction? Of course, you have to go for because let's play let's just play out the decision tree for a second. You go for it. Suppose you don't make it. So now Cleveland has the ball, but of course at the six yard line. Why? Why is this like an obvious thing to go for? Well, because first of all, you need to pass them. <laughs> I mean, you have to, you've got to pass them. You cannot win the game unless you get more points than your opponent. I mean, even 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 I know that about the NFL. So you've got to score at some point. So and and you got to get ahead of them. Here's your golden opportunity to get ahead. If you go fourth fourth and one. You're, you're likely to make that. It's about 67 to 68 percent. And let me tell you what's also good that. about it, which was also brought up in the analysis. The clock keeps running. Keeps running. So actually, not only are you going to likely score, but you're going to use up the time. time. And so now maybe you take the lead with a minute and a half left. And by the way, if you score seven here, let's remember they're down four. Well, now you're up three. Which means you also, I mean, it's the math at seventeen thirteen works where a touchdown plus one, now they can tie they, you, but they can't, they can't beat you ahead. with they can't beat you with it's a the, field goal. The problem is, is that most people, I mean, what he didn't understand. The coach didn't understand that probabilities multiply and things get smaller rapidly. So think about what has to happen in order for them to win the game if they pick the field, if they kick the field goal, which they did, and it was which, made right. They and got, they, by the way, they lost seventeen sixteen. They exactly they they the. Uh, they have to get the ball back quickly. Right. So let's remember, they had one. I also brought up one timeout. Let's play a scenario out where Cleveland gets one first down, just one first mm-hmm. down. Well, three plays takes two minutes off the clock. Yep. They had the two-minute warning. But remember, they get to run the three plays. If that gets a first down, they get to run another three plays. Essentially, the game's over at that point. So you're resting the entire game on your defense being able to stop them from getting one first down. That's and it. And let's multiply it. And then, even if you stop them, you still got to score. You got to drive down right. and score, and that's the issue of multiplication. Because stopping them from getting that first down is probably a small event, probably twenty five percent that they can do that. And then on top of it, you have another twenty five percent probability, which is getting down to field goal range and scoring very, very quickly with very little time left. I'm just throwing out you know numbers here. We're looking at things in about the one in six probability of, of those things happening. So your probability of winning the game probably dropped to about one in six, and that's I think that's what it was. Maybe a little higher than that. No, it was down to 26%. 26 after kicking the field goal, kicking the it field was goal, down to 26%. 26%. I would actually would have said it a little bit a little bit lower than that. And and going going just going for it. You didn't... <laughs> it wasn't the it, yeah, outcome. It wasn't the, even the my outcome. My statement it's of amazing. probabilities is not dependent on so, the outcome. So let's go back and ask what I mean. So what was number two? That's always very interesting. Did they? Did anyone? There is a list. It? I didn't okay. have time. I, I, next week's show. Well, not next week. I mean, next show we're on after the new year. I will bring in the entire list. But I want to go back to a statistical point you made, which I thought not. I mean, obviously, I, always, I think every point you make <laughs> is extremely thoughtful. But this was a really clever one. Thank you, Eric. Which yeah. is no, I am. A, I'm a big fan of yours. That's why I love doing <laughs> the show with you. I'm a fan. We've got you've got we lots of great time, money. Yeah. Ball fans, yeah. let's imagine. Talk about the difference between the change in odds versus the change in absolute probability. Because, right, right. for example, you even brought up an example. 
there are many decisions that are made that might lower the win probability from 15% to 5%. Now, that's a massive drop in odds. That's a 10% absolute difference, as opposed to one that might go from 40 to 20. Now, that's a bigger absolute percentage, but not as much change. Could you right. just talk to our listeners about how to think about what I'll call odds changes versus yeah, absolute so changes? This is, this is actually very important because it has to do with, you know, what are you going to be doing with the odds and what are the, what are the contexts that they're used in? And um, essentially, I mean, if you think about it, going from a 15 to a 5, from a better perspective, that's actually a much bigger difference than going from say 60 to 30 um on a on the on the outcome because it's really a three times um and and it's the ratio that matters when it when it's when it comes to say aggregate of bets over the long run it's the prop it's the multiplicative properties of these ratios that matter and so and they're just making it more extreme just go down from 20 to zero Right, well, that was the example <laughs> you, you know, had given. So zero has a, a magical property. I mean, zero is zero. zero, right? And so essentially you're taking the game out of your hands. And, and, and at some level, that has got to be the stupidest decision of all, to go from um, having a chance to win to having no chance to win. And that wouldn't necessarily show up as their number one method, um, the m- number one dumb decision, according to this metric, which is different, difference in probability. Well, you also bring up an important point that in some sense, and this is another great point for all of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, the metric you choose to measure anything, but in this case, extremeness, it matters. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about the absolute scale? Are you talking about on a proportional or an odd scale? It really does matter in this particular Absolutely. case. So again, this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School. We're here on Wharton Moneyball, and I'm here with my co-host and friend this morning, Professor Adi Weiner of the Statistics Department. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Of course, I'm about to ask Adi what he noticed in football this week, but I'm sure you must have seen, there must have been tons of bonehead plays you'd like to talk about this week from a statistical perspective. So what, what caught your eye so, in the NFL so, uh, this week? Uh, getting back to the decision-making on fourth and one, that's Really, what was what had caught my eye was this 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 mistake, this constant repeated failure to go for it on fourth down, even though the chart says yes. So here's my observation about that. I'll, that I'll throw out, um, and it really kind of is the other side of the of the argument that we were talking about with the decision with the Broncos. That was the biggest percentage gap in 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 terms of decision making in absolute scale. I think, and I don't know the answer to this because it's not reported, that most of the fourth and one and fourth and two decisions that are mistakes are mistakes with very low differential and probabilities. And those aren't reported. So uh, I think in, in the Eagles game um, on on uh, Sunday, there was a couple of, of decisions made at fourth and one. More one or less, they went for it. The other one, they, I think they were at their own forty yard line. 40, they, they did chose not, they not sh- to go for and it. And that that, according to the chart, is a, is a, is not the right move. But I wondered what, what was the what is the alternative move? So t- what's the change in win probability, for example? What is the change in expected points by not doing it? I think it's probably in the hundredth place. You know what's really fascinating about what you're saying let's imagine on the x-axis let's imagine a, a graph for our listeners out there so i'm putting with my hands an x and y axis yeah. here graph imagine <laughs> if you the, could see it like yeah, i if do you it, could see it's it, better <laughs> imagine on the x-axis you have the change in win probability and on the y-axis you had the decision that was made what you're pointing out is it's probably a threshold model which means you should go for it in a certain range, but people just don't. It probably, I'm not saying all the time, but the probability of going for it as a function of should you go for it is probably, there's probably what we call a step function, right. which is, you know, for really small gains, 
it's they probably not don't worth do it. it. They because probably of, don't do it. Matter of yeah. fact, I'm going to try to find a way to collect that data because I'm really I'm fascinated yeah. by this non-linearity. Like, do people really know? Yeah, you know what? I could go for it. And you're right. It would help me in the hundreds place, but it's not worth going for it in the hundreds place. It would be a fascinating so, so study. I, I think that what you described with the game itself, which you, thanks for you for actually remembering, um, it was a right, a right around the Eagles' own 40-yard line. It was definitely at the 40-yard line. And they didn't go for it. And, and I think that the, the gap is probably quite modest. Although, if you look at the chart, as I said earlier, there's no point on the field where you're not supposed to go for it at fourth and one. And fourth and, and on the 40-yard line is certainly in the range of, in the definitely, range of definitely an advantage. And, and they don't do it. And I think that is interesting because this is a, a sport that has been analyzed for a long time. And think about what NFL was like even f- five years, four years ago when we started our show. There was practically no analytics in the NFL. It is now all over the place, yet these basic moves are still not actually adopted in terms of the decision-making on the field. And that gets me to wonder, and that's kind of like, you know, kindergarten-level decision-making. Right. The fourth, that Romer paper came out years ago, and we've had much time to ruminate over these things and, and incorporate them into the field of play. We're just not seeing fundamental changes. Well, I've got a lot more football to talk about, but we have two football guests today, so... Adi, we do. I'd like to talk I know, about, yeah. but we, we'll look. <laughs> For anybody that's ever listened to any of our shows, and, you know, it's probably, I don't know, a quarter of the time it's me and you, just, just the two of us. And, of yeah. course, we wish our best to our co-hosts, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen. They'll be back. Of course, all of us will be back uh, in the 2019 year for, our, I guess, our fifth year. Is uh, it really? Yeah, it's our fifth year, fifth year of Wharton Moneyball. It's very exciting, very exciting. Um, we have to talk about M- the, the baseball. Now, there's two topics I wanted to talk to you about. The first one is, and everybody knows that listens to our show, I'm a Hall of Fame Pantheon guy. I've always said there's three tiers, if you'd like, of the MLB Hall of Fame. There's the rarefied air guys who are like the, I don't know, Ted Williams, you know, uh, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, you know, th- that rarefied air. And then there's the very good Hall of Famers, you know, someone like, well, I don't even know, you might even consider Greg. Excellent players, by the way. This, let's not let's not detract from them. They're the, the, the tier of no, the no, very no, good Hall of Famers. Second tier of the yeah. top, top, yeah. top mm-hmm. tier of players. I don't know, maybe Reggie Jackson. You know, somebody in that second tier of Hall of yeah. Fame player. Mm-hmm. You know, Willie McCovey, guys that were great. George Brett, Rod Carew. These are clear Hall of Famers, but I'm not in the rarefied right. pantheon. And then there's the third, third tier of Hall of Famer, which I've always said. like Just you know, squeezing in. Yeah, you know, in my view, like a, even though they won 300 games, like a Gaylord Perry, Don Sutton. You know, these guys won 12 games a year for 25 years, and so they got the 300 wins. Harold Baines, not even in the third tier. Just got into the Hall of Fame. So let me just tell you his numbers a little bit. Although, let me just... Well, he didn't get in by the by the standard method, the backdoor approach or the he Veterans got, he Committee. He got in what used to be called the Veterans yeah. Committee. It's oh, no it's longer not called, called that anymore. It's not. They changed see, it. Yeah. They don't want it to be called that anymore. <laughs> but let me, let me just tell you the good news about his numbers. Let me just say the reasonable part of his numbers. So if we use historical metrics... 2,866 hits. So let's just start with that. Okay, for just a shy of 3,000. But that's a big number. That, yes, it is a big number. 380 home runs. And also a, a relatively big number for a, for a, you know, a, a non-home run hitting person. Correct. Yeah. Here's a number that's actually quite big. 1,628 RBIs. Okay. So... Those numbers are starting to smell like the Hall of Fame a little bit. Now, here's some things that you could debate. Batting average, 289. I mean, not awful, but not great. O- OPS, 820. 
That's a hundred points shy of the Hall of Fame, right there. Correct. So how did when you heard? Oh, I think over a career, that's probably. But when you heard about this, what did you think? Or you know, did you think about you know how did you think about this in the Hall of Fame? Or did you think you know they have to start using more advanced metrics? Or how did you think about? Well, it? Well, first of all, I don't even know what the advanced metrics say. I mean, one of the things that people like to talk about are the contributions made on the field. Um, and I mean, his OBP couldn't have been that high because his OPS isn't that high. So what is uh, so? And those are some of the things that the more modern community thinks about. What do we know about his defense? I think Harold Baines was considered a good defensive player, but who cares what you and I think? We have Dan from Atlanta. <laughs> Dan, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with my friend and co-host Dottie Weiner. How about it, fellas? Uh, I just want to comment on that Baines thing. I saw a good take on High Heat the other day between Tony LaRusso and Chris Russo, uh, and they were arguing the same points, and I think LaRusso really wanted to smack Russo, but <laughs> Russo brought up one. Russo you mean the mad, dog got, the mad dog Chris Russo got excited on the air? I can't believe it. Well, I think LaRusso wanted to uh, give him a right hook, too, as well. So what was the uh, basic, but, uh, Dan, what was the basic discussion that you heard? Basically, LaRusso, you know, said, hey, I, it's the eye test for me and others, you know, and numbers are numbers, and I agree with a good extent. But Russo, Chris Mad Dog's point was he just does it. It's not the eye test, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's where I'm with it. I just don't see Baines as a Hall of Famer because he just doesn't meet the eye test. And also, he said that he never once won, led one single category ever. Yep. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at this right now, and that's, this is one of the things that, that Eric likes to talk about, is that there's a combination of longevity and dominance. And Baines certainly had longevity. He owned that department. But dominance, not even close to dominance. I mean, this, this, your point is excellent. Not, n- never led one category. Nothing. Never mind winning an MVP. Never mind even being the top 10 in the MVP. He was never the top ten. I think in the MVP. To, and what I'm looking at is that he was tenth in the for the MVP. Remember that's league wide, so that's right. You get two leagues there, so maybe your twentieth best overall in uh, 1984. That's it. Well, Dan, we want to thank you for your call. Let me. Add, I forgot to add one other thing. Um, do you, I, I know war has its flaws? We both agree war has its flaws. Okay. Um, how would you feel about someone being in the Hall of Fame that was the hundredth best all time in war? Not horrible, right? No, no, not horrible. Right. How about two hundredth? I'm starting to worry. How about 300th? Absolutely. I think, I, I think I, I'm, I'm not done yet. You're not even done yet. I, no. He's 545th. I think Mike Trout has more war now oh, than Oh, no, Bain. no, no. Is that true? Harold <laughs> Baines' war is 38.7. Mike right. Trout's in the 60s right oh, now. not even close. 545th all time in war. Okay, so let me ask you. So we've now just buried Harold Baines. What do you think about the non-veterans committee, veterans committee? Do we all just put them in a category? I mean, like with Phil Rizzuto. Although Phil Rizzuto, I remember when he was elected to, by the veterans committee, and this, yes. was, this was someone that we followed a lot Absolutely. as a longtime Yankee announcer. At least Phil Rizzuto had, had two handfuls, two out. Uh, Two fingers, two hands for worth of World Series rings, and won an MVP. Well, that that's the issue also. But also, you just pointed out something. So here's my rationale for Harold Baines getting in. First of all, neither one of us disagrees. He was a very good player. Sure. Very good player. Very good player. Never the best player in baseball. Never even close to the best player in baseball. It's probably similar to Phil Rizzuto in the following sense. Mm-hmm. Phil Rizzuto had a... You could argue a Hall of Fame career as a broadcaster. Right. So now you combine that with his 
career as a player, he's in the Hall of Fame. You almost think about it in some way like, although he would have gotten in just as a manager, Joe Torre. Matter of fact, Joe Torre, as you remember, excellent, excellent baseball, excellent baseball fact, player. He was sure. MVP of the league. And did lead uh, categories. He did lead categories. <laughs> we could argue he's better than Harold Baines oh, in certainly. some categories. Yeah. Harold Baines is on the MLB Network. And so he was one of the first guys to kind of move into an analyst role in the MLB. He, and so one could make an argument. Career his contribution. total contribution to baseball is sufficient. I just, But I love Dan's point, which is my, it's not just my eye test. He was never the best player in baseball. He was never even close to the best player in baseball. And he had a very good long career. But to me, it sort of did, I have to admit, it did tarnish. Well, the ballots are trickling in as we speak. And in the coming months, we'll be able to dissect the next group. By the way, just so you know, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, as always. Um, you heard this guy, Mookie Betts? You heard of him? I heard of him. Yeah. He's played five seasons, and he's got a war of 35.2 right now. Right. So let's put him in the Hall of Fame. Sure. Him right next to him. Put his bust <laughs> right next to Harold Baines's bust right now. The other topic I wanted to talk to you about in baseball, which is, um, I guess, the. by the way, it's, it's a perfect extension of war. Do you know who's got the highest war of all time? It's got to be Babe Ruth. Babe Without Ruth. A question. That's not even close. Yeah. There was a story about Babe Ruth yes. that came out. <laughs> I guess Babe Ruth wouldn't have been able to even make the MLB today. I guess. So could you tell, yeah, first tell for our listeners it. what the story was so about? It's very interesting because Adam Otavino, who's now on the free agent market, and he was a dominant um, reliever for, the, for Colorado last year. And he got there by hard work in many sense. I mean, really, the frontline analytics approach with all the systems where you where you track the, the movement of your ball and you try to really become a, a that, that that top top pitcher by 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 working very very hard. Basically, made a blow off comment that you drop Babe Ruth into the the game today. He said he would strike him out all the time, and that would be it. And of course, this led to uh, this is a hot take, and a hot take leads, leads to lots of discussion. And a lot of that discussion has actually been quite interesting. So, on a certain level, I think he is right in the sense that and that if you just dropped Babe Ruth into today's game, just gave him a bat and said walk up. He'd be out of his out of his league. I mean, he'd never have seen the kinds of movements and speeds that you're seeing out of pitchers today. Do you think it's the movement or the speed? Do you think like it, it's I mean, a combination? I mean, look at I mean, it's the placement. It's I mean, what think about what what it used to be? I well, mean, the, the players used to the pitchers used to pitch 45 games a season and 400 innings was just absolutely standard. They were just soft tossing it. Now, of course. Sabathia soft tosses, and he's hard as hell to hit. So it's not or exactly. Or how about the you know, winningest pitcher in the last sixty years? His name is Greg Maddox. Also, Greg Maddox, the winningest pitcher right. basically in modern baseball. Greg Maddox, I think it's three hundred and fifty-five wins, never even really reached ninety miles an hour. Right. So you can tu- you can turn it around and say that that the, the modern pitcher might have just is missing the point because throwing really hard doesn't necessarily mean you're good. But the real question becomes what what you know if you look at if you look at Babe Ruth's swing and look at his swing today compared to the modern swings, it, he almost took a little crow hop. Um, he he turned his whole body into 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 the motion, it, and it, part of that has to do with the the speeds of the pitchers. You just had the time then. And let me also say, I, I forget the ounce of the bat he swung. Was it forty? So fifty ounce bat? There's he no started way, in the fifties. I know there's no way you bat. could swing a bat that heavy today right. and catch up to a ninety eight mile an hour fastball. So I have a couple of comments, and there and, and lots of people have actually discussed this. You know what what's different today than there is now, and there there are pros and there's cons. On the pro side, we know. Know that a lighter bat is better 
and he didn't know that and didn't necessarily need that at the time. And so he would have used a lighter bat by definition. So that would have sped up that his bat speed. That would have sped up his bat. Uh, on the pro side, just training and, and knowledge, all of us in our analytics and well, the context. How about He would have advantage yeah, of that too. I mean, yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah. How about the fact, I agree, he'd be facing 98, 99 mile an hour fastballs some of the time, but how about the fact that he'd have, I mean, I don't know that he was this kind of guy, but you could hand him a scouting report and saying, here's the pitch that's, that's likely right. coming. That right. might help, you, Babe You would have a lot of help. So he wouldn't. So one of the things that's interesting about this sort of cross-dimensional characterization is the individuals, if you pop them in today, you can't assume they would, be, they would look like they were then today. But it is fun to kind of ask, and with baseball, we do that. So I would actually, there's a, a wonderful video of, of Barry Bonds trying to hit a, hit a softball pitched by a top. Oh. And, and he can't touch it. Can't touch it. But the real reason why he can't touch it, he's just not used to that angle and in that speed and that arc. But if you gave him a couple of days of practice, I'm sure Barry Bonds would turn into a fine hitter of that of that softball. And and that's really the same thing in some level with Babe Ruth. You put him in today, and there's no doubt Odovino would strike him out the first couple times he faced him. But you'd be but very quickly you'd be facing a different Babe Ruth. So actually, it turns out there's one. There was ran an article in the Washington Post, which which is very fascinating to me. Back in the 1920s, early 1920s, Columbia University brought Babe Ruth into the laboratory and they tested him. They tested him in three ways. Physical strength by measuring his bat speed, um, eye, eye kind of uh, hand-eye coordination, and physical dexterity okay. with these games that they gave, gave him. And he was off the charts not only on physical strength. Which he was obviously a big, big strong eye, man. But also in eye dexterity and hand dexterity, which are almost you think of as three separate skills. Off, they have a... They have a, these yeah, are, so these distri- are, you have a distribution that you measure And he was on. in the 99.9 percentile on all three. And they'd never seen anyone just dominate so completely on all three of these tests. And they actually, and so somewhat recently, back in the 90s, they brought Albert Pujols to do something like the same. And it turns out Babe Ruth crushed him. And just give you one, just one dimension. The bat speed, Pujols swung a 32-ounce bat, about 87 miles per hour. Okay. And Babe Ruth swung a 54-ounce bat, 75 miles per hour. That's 50% more momentum. Wow, fifty percent more yeah, momentum. So that's that's huge. <laughs> yeah. That is just an absolutely huge. And if you've number. ever seen Pujols, that guy's strong. Um, so just put it now. It's not clear whether you know what what the linearity is of this of this system. Of course. Well, let me ask you just one final question in the last minute we have. Why can't we do the following? There were guys, the big train Walter Johnson. There were guys that threw back then in the mid nineties. Yeah. Could we not just go back? Look, I, maybe this is not, I'm not saying it's a perfect analysis. Could we go back and look at Babe Ruth's at-bats, see his batting average, his OPS, etc., as a function of pitch speed, and take a look? I mean, that's an analysis one sure. can get the data on. Yep. Well, maybe. Maybe mm, using you video know, pi- footage. You don't, know, you don't know pitch speed. You can only guess at it. You could guess at it. Yep. But couldn't we do some sort of analysis there and see if, you know... How much? I mean, everybody. It's kind of like when horses. Words, every horse slows down. Right, everybody's right. going to get worse as the pitch speed goes up. But was like Babe Ruth a one fifty hitter against fast pitchers? I mean, my I mean, guess is true. no. That, yeah. So Odovino thinks he'd bat one eighty with eight home runs in today's game. Oh, that's, so that's very fascinating. This is crazy. I mean, obviously, it's a very different game. I mean, there's a different. We are, it's, a, it's an international game today. Um, and obviously, in back in Babe Ruth's day, there was there were separated or segregated leagues. They didn't they didn't have to play, face any of the black athletes. But on the other hand, today you face athletes from all over the world, and and, and of course. There was also no competition from other sports, and baseball right. was the sport. Well, we don't do, you know, and obviously in this time of year, we do the Moneyball matchups. We don't do the over-under, but um, I'm taking the over on 180 and eight home runs. <laughs> that, that's my statement. So this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we have three quarters to go. Stay with us and join us after the break. 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. We're on Sirius XM Business Radio 132, powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm co-hosting this morning with my friend and colleague, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. And just like Dan from Atlanta, you too can join the show. If you want to call in, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Adi, obviously a great part of Wharton Moneyball for the last four-plus years, going into our fifth year in 2019, is that we have guests on the show so we can talk to about analytics in the world of sports. And, of course, this half hour is no different. Uh, We're lucky to have Ben Baldwin joining us. Uh, Ben is an economist by trade. Uh, He uses large data sets to learn about human behavior. That's a very noble uh, job and profession. Uh, Ben joined The Athletic after previously covering the Seattle Seahawks. Um, His work has been featured on Football Outsiders, Football Perspective, covering lots of different topics. So, Ben, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. Hey guys, thanks for having me. There's nothing quite like the NFL in December, so it's a, it's a really good time to talk about football. It's it's always a good time in my household to talk yeah, about yeah, football, sure so because I'm a huge NFL fan. I've actually this is my number one season. Ben, you'll be happy about this. I've seen I've been to five different stadiums this year, so I'm I'm really this has been a eclectic NFL season for me. So I'm happy to have I'm, you on the show. I'm impressed. I went up to uh, the stadium in Philadelphia for a Seahawks game when they were there a few years ago, and it, it's a really great. Uh, stadium to catch an NFL game in. Absolutely. We're very proud of Lincoln Financial Field, or as we call it, the home of champions. Since we, <laughs> until, until, we, until we get beaten this year, we're still the champs. So could you talk to us? One of the things we always like to talk about on Wharton Moneyball is you're an economist by training. So how does an economist turn himself into someone working on sports, statistics, analytics, full-time, and kind of writing about it? Could you tell us about a little bit about your career path? Yeah, um, so I finished grad school and um, suddenly had a lot more time on the nights and weekends where I wasn't studying for uh, finals or writing papers or things like that. So, of course, I found myself watching sports and reading about sports. And I just found that the, a lot of the commentary around football, especially, is just really bad. So people have all these conventional wisdom sayings where they say things like, uh, you have to run to set up play action passing, but nobody's ever expected to test or defend these hypotheses. So um, I, I saw that there was some avenue for someone who was interested in these questions and could get his hands on data to actually test some of these questions. And uh, that's kind of how I, I got my foot in the door. I'm, I still have uh, a day job where I am a, a full-time economist and um, writing about the Seahawks and football is, is kind of a, a thing on the side where I, I do that as a contributor. So I, I wouldn't call it a, a career as much as um, just, just seeing a place where I, I think I can make a very small contribution to kind of the overall way that people talk about football, uh, hopefully. Well, are there ways, so before we go into talking about some specific articles you've written recently, how do you, is there overlap between your day job as a full-time economist and what you write about? Do you share skills? Do you like, what? what's kind of the overlap that allows you to transport, let's call it your daytime skills to your, if you like, your hobby skills at The Athletic? Oh yeah, absolutely. So a, a lot of, it, in both of it, a lot of it is getting the data and then having the skills to... Uh, clean the data, analyze it, and kind of arrive at some answer you want. Uh, so uh, so a, a general overarching question that, that could be common to both. Um, so um, I work in, in the field of education policy, so we might want to know um, 
which teachers or which teacher training programs um, on average raise the achievement of their students. Um, and, and to answer this, we want to um, try to take into account as many factors as we can, uh, the prior achievement of uh, students, um, the wealth of the local area, all these kind of things. And you can, you can kind of think about this in a similar way. Let, let's say we're, we're thinking about the NFL draft. Um, we want to know um, which players are going to add the most value to their teams, but there's all these other factors we have to take into account. So it, it's kind of um, regardless of uh, what you're doing, trying to find some underlying signal in, in the mess of this, these huge data sets uh, that we're working with. And, and of course the, the things you learn in grad school and, and use in your in your day job, um, uh, programming, uh, writing code uh, to analyze data, all that stuff is useful in, in so many different ways, and in, including in sports. Well, you just mentioned the idea of kind of looking at added value. I, we know you wrote a recent article that looks at quarterback success rate and expected points added per play. Could you talk about that analysis? What made you think about quarterback success rate, expected points, and kind of how do the as as you said it's December it's the NFL how are the quarterbacks this year stacking up and what did you find right so a, a lot of um, what people have shifted to is, is looking at expected points added generally and just as kind of a, a brief overview so yeah that would be great if for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball you could yeah. define all the terms also if you don't mind also just give us a quick contrast to some of the standard historical ways we've been evaluating quarterbacks and how these are this new method kind of contrasts. Yeah, so expected points added um, comes from expected points, which uh, for every place on the field, so um, yard line plus down and distance combination, you get the offense has some expected number of points they're uh, expected to score on that drive. Uh, so, for example, if you are if you have first and goal at the opponent's one yard line, your expected points are going to be very close to seven because most drives in that situation are going to end in the touchdown. If you're backed up, uh, against your own end zone, then your expected points are going to be negative because um, the um, in expectation, the next team that is going to score is going to be your opponent because you're probably going to punt and then they're probably going to score. So what expected points added does is it takes these expected points and uh, looks at the value uh, at the start of a play and then the value at the end of the play going into the next play. And then the expected points added is, is the difference in play or the difference uh, in expected points from one play to the next. So, so the advantage of this is it um, takes into account the context of the, the down and distance and field position. Uh, so, for example, if you had, um, let's say you had a running back who got a lot of carries on third and one, and, and he always got that one yard and converted. If you just looked at something like yards per carry, then it's going to not look good because it doesn't take into account the value of the first down, uh, for example. But if you looked at, uh, something like expected points added, um, getting a yard on, on third and one is actually really valuable because you're um, getting a new set of downs. Similarly, also a quarterback who throws interceptions in the red zone is going to get destroyed. But if you throw them when you're deep in your own territory, it doesn't matter that much. Yeah, that's right. Um, or um, on, on interceptions, it, it's much less damaging to throw an interception on third down deep down the field than it is on uh, first and ten where... Yeah, it's like right. a punt. It's, yeah. like, we always it's, like, a, it's like a punt. It's like a, not a bad punt, actually. Yeah. So can you talk to us? Yeah, can you talk to us? Again, we're talking to Ben Baldwin. Ben is an economist by trade, actually works, we found out, in the field of education policy, and Ben uh, joined The Athletic after previously covering the Seahawks. So, Ben, could you talk to us about uh, what you found? Right. So um, a, a lot of what um, 
people have been doing looking at expected points added this year is, is trying to look at um, when we're midway through the season, what factors are predictive of um, how a team will will be doing forward. So this is this is trying to use a, a, a team's first eight, eight game sample, um, looking at um, how they'll do in the next eight game sample. And and the the main finding is that quarterback play is by far the most stable thing from um, the beginning of the season to the end of the season. Um, so if, if you're a team that has a good quarterback, then you're you're probably going to be persistently good over time. And if you don't, then um, you're going to be in trouble. Now, none of this is exactly new, but um, it, it helps us understand, uh, for example, um, why the, the best teams are over years and years and years are the ones with um, tend to be the ones with good quarterbacks because th- those are the teams that um, quarterback play is, is something that's stable and valuable and everything else kind of fluctuates around, but the quarterback is always there. Um, uh, an example of this is Drew Brees with the Saints, where he's always played at a really high level. Um, but now that their defense is actually capable, they, they've turned into a really good team. So let me ask you a question about that. So what did you, like, who, um, which of the quarterbacks, is? Uh, you mentioned Drew Brees. I've, I'm looking at a chart that you produce, I assume. Um, what, what did you find? Like, you know, obviously Drew Brees is having a fantastic year. Pat Mahomes is having a fantastic year, at least up until the last few weeks. Jared Goff was having a fantastic year. Like, which of the quarterbacks, if any, are standing out this year? So for if we had had this conversation maybe three weeks ago, the, the answer would have been Drew Brees by a mile. He, he had a, a massive statistical lead on, at least in terms of uh, EPA and success rate, which is the, the percent of plays that go for positive EPA. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. And then that, uh, I think it was a Thursday night, um, that game against the Cowboys where um, the Saints offense really got shut down. And then it got shut down for the most part again uh, against the Panthers on Monday. So now he and Mahomes are pretty much in a dead heat statistically. So it makes for a really interesting MVP conversation because unlike most years, there's no real quarterback A has has had much better efficiency or um, statistical production than quarterback B. So then you kind of have to go to like um, all these sub arguments about uh, supporting cast or uh, opponent strength or um, all these different things that, that kind of reveal um, what whoever is arguing for MVP really values in in who they think should win the MVP award this year. So, yeah. So I, I'm just looking. I'm actually just looking at your chart. A couple of things uh, interest me, and I wanted to ask you a, a follow up after that. If you look at your chart, you notice that um, down at the bottom, <laughs> kind of in all dimensions, are the, are the are the new ones, the new guys, the rookies, Darnold, yeah. Rosen, um, even even Mayfield. He shows up really kind of on the low side. Um, so is this because of you, you're, this? They need some time to mature. I mean, what's what's going on here? And you look at obviously May, Mayhems is right at the top, right, right. Um, but what, what is this? What what does this mean? Yeah, um, uh, very quickly on Baker Mayfield, he has um, he really struggled at the beginning. But if you look at, um, I think it was week nine on when they um, got a new offensive coordinator, his numbers have been substantially better. Um, so it, it's really just the three, the, the Josh Allen, Sam Darnold, and, and Josh Rosen. And it's hard to separate out, uh, are they struggling because they're new to the league, which would make sense, or are they struggling because in order to get drafted high as a quarterback, you have to end up in a really bad situation, which right, I think right. <laughs> everyone would uh, agree describes the, the Cardinals, Jets, and Bills. So 
Um, well, it, the Bills, that's that. To the Bills' credit, last time I remember, the Bills did make the playoffs last year. So they, they, their situation wasn't as horrible and bad. Yeah. they Did they trade up to get Allen? I, I can't even remember. But um, that, that's the other thing is the, the Jets gave up a bunch of draft picks to move up. So not only were they not great last year, which is why they were close to the top of the draft, but they also gave up a bunch of draft picks, which is going to hurt uh, you yep. the team in the future. Yeah. So it, 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 it's really hard for a rookie to step in and, and succeed in that situation, especially compared to um, Pat Mahomes isn't a rookie, but this is his first um, year playing the whole season. And it, if you just look at the, the talent and the environment around him, it's just such a different situation than the, the Sam Darnolds and Josh Allens of the world are placed in. I know we've uh, I know you've done a lot of work on what I would call uh, you know advanced metrics and statistics in football. If you had to like you know I was Adi and I always like to talk about this. You know we're both baseball guys from training. Not that I don't watch every sport, which I do, but you know baseball is kind of where my DNA is. And you know baseball historically has the box score. And we were just talking about Harold Baines and him making the Hall of Fame in Major League Baseball. What do you think if you could if we could have the Ben Baldwin box, box score yeah. in football even just for quarterbacks yeah, what would it even look like? quarterbacks player what would be on it like what what are the metrics that you've seen that you are now it like, just enamored be with touchdowns and interceptions and yards per play and total yards because that's all I see and I, I've been watching a little more football than I used to and I don't see any modern metrics just in the broadcasts so I'll I'll start with most simple and then work my way to the 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 things I would dream of that probably won't ever happen. But <laughs> the, the number one thing that I think should be in a box score is first down. And it's kind of crazy that it's not in there, but it's not. So you could have a passer complete a bunch of passes, but if they don't go for yeah. um, first downs, then they're, the, the passes aren't as meaningful. So What's interesting, let's um, take these one at a time, if you don't mind, Ben. Um, again, what's interesting is they do report that at the team level. You can get the team right. number of first downs for the game or even in the middle of the game, but you're right. They don't attribute it to the quarterback, the running back, etc. Although, interestingly enough, uh, one of the secret sauces in Massey Peabody, one of the inputs into the Massey Peabody is play success. And in some level, that's really first down. And you can, as long as your play is successful, whether it's third and one or whether it's that short yardage or the long play, that that's kind of a, a, a variant right. of that. Anyway, Ben, that was the start. Right, we're all starting right, out we, simple. We, we all got what first downs are. Yep. Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> um, and uh, it was just mentioned, but the the second thing I would mention would be success. So this is the okay. this would be the percent of plays that are successful, and it, it's not always the same as first downs because. Uh, for example, you could have an eight-yard gain on first and ten, and, and that would count as a successful play, but not a first down. Um, so there is some overlap between the two, but uh, knowing, for example, the the percent of quarterback dropbacks that were successful. Um, you know what's be, in, you uh, know what's interesting, Ben. You know what his analysis I've never done. Maybe you've done it or you've seen someone do it. Like you just mentioned, a eight-yard gain on first and ten obviously makes it second and two. What's that equivalent to? Like, is that equivalent to on second and six getting four yards or five yards? Now it's third can't and one. Be, I would guess. No, no, no. I, well, it can't be. I'd rather have second yeah. and two than third and two. That's yeah. for sure. But it's almost like you know what we call in marketing or statistics ISO curves. Like, I, I'd love to have equivalent plays for down and right. distance <laughs> right. that give you essentially the same expected number of points. It would be you know. I'm, well, that, I, I think it, that's that's the if you try to come up with a definition of play success, you have to have a, well, that's a baseline and anything above that baseline. That's what I was asking, check. Ben. Have you ever yeah. seen anything done that tries to equalize, you know, number of yards given down in distance, uh, something like that? Yeah. So there, 
Um, the the expected points model that um, goes into NFL Scraper, which is the um, the data source that all a lot of people use, including myself. Uh, so this was this is a package generated by uh, Ron Yurko and Cardi Cardi Mellon, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, at, at CMU um, uh, Stat Sam as well. Um, so if I can um, send or tweet out this paper, but um, in order to estimate expected points added, that that's exactly what um, you need to generate. So there, there's these curves. So the the x-axis is the the yard line on the football field. The y-axis is the expected points, and then you have one curve for each down and distance. So I you see. Can kind of eyeball it to see um, the kind of equivalent expected point values um, for different parts of the field and, and different towns. Well, I have to tell you, I would love to see that in a broadcast. Before the play, you'd kind of know these are the number of yards you need to get in order to increase expectancy. And this, if you actually, don't get that, you're going down. Actually, It's a I, great number. Yeah. So, Ben, as someone that's not just an economist and someone that works in this area, but someone that's a writer as well, do you ever see what Adi just described ever happening like on live broadcast? Like, you know, imagine a split, not a, call it a split screen, but I was even describing four weeks ago on, I was watching the NFL, on one page, there was on one like ESPN. There was the regular broadcast, and ESPN two is what they called the Statcast well, version. I, I, Do you ever yeah. see that happening in the NFL? I would. I would love to say yes, and I would love it if it happened. But I'm a little bit skeptical, just because the, the NFL just seems so traditionalist. Where. Where baseball is so non-traditional. They have have their broadcast angle, and um, I guess the the optimist view would be that they're they have been doing more on the data side. So they have their uh, next gen stats. Um, They put, I think Michael Lopez was on the show, right? Um, Yes, he has. We've mm -hmm. had Mike a number of times. Well, they Uh, created Michael Lopez's position. I mean, he was a yeah. That was yeah. Um, so all, all of these seem like steps in the right directions, but actually putting those on the broadcast and then having um, the the people on the broadcast be, actually be able to talk about those, um, if, if it is going to happen, it, it feels like we're, we're probably a long way away from that. Sadly. So any other any other advanced stats? And then I, in the last few minutes, I want to get your take on the rest of the NFL season, how you think it'll play out. But uh, any other advanced stats you would like? So I... I would like to see uh, expected points added per play, but that one's it's a lot more complicated to calculate than if you were just going to throw in first downs or success rate. Um, mm-hmm. But um, if, if first rounds, if first downs and success rate were added, then that I, I think that would be uh, a huge help to just be able to get a quick look at the box score and, and see what happened. Well, those all sound great when um, you know when Adi and I own an NFL team, Ben. We we know we're who to hire. You. We're hired to bring uh, in. But I want to okay. ask you one question about uh, a, a, a quarterback that's not on your list here, who just substituted for Carson Wentz, who seems to get no love. Certainly, Massey Peabody did not like him. Um, yet he's been terrific, I guess. What do you think about about Nick Foles? Yeah, he's he's such a conundrum, right? Uh, we saw him come in at the end of last season in the regular season, and and he looked. Their, their offense did not look good, so everyone thought the Eagles season was over. And then the playoffs happened. So, um, and the, and then after that, the beginning of this regular season happened. So it's it's so hard to know uh, what to make of him. Um, the unfortunately for the Eagles, the what they had going for them last year was uh, the first round by and, and not having to play a road game. Um, so they just had to win two home games to get to the Super Bowl. Well, um, well now they have to basically win two games to even make the playoffs and then have a hard road to the Super Bowl. So 
it's kind of they oh they're super long there. shots but is is, is yeah. Nick Foles a, a big step down from uh, Carson Wentz uh, I I would say yes but at the same time it's it's also really hard to explain what happened in the NFC championship game in the Super Bowl so. <laughs> okay all right so Ben we only have about a minute left if you could give us what's your prediction for how the NFL season is going to play out how do your beloved Seahawks look how do, how do you see the uh, NFL season playing out uh, to the Seahawks, uh, maybe they'll win a playoff game. If they do, then that, that'd probably be a successful season for them, given expectations. Um, over the past ten or over the past five NFL seasons, there's been ten number one seeds, one from each conference, and I think the number is nine of them that have made it to the Super Bowl. So teams that don't have a first round bye uh, and, and even a number one seed are. Um, they, they have a really rough road to the Super Bowl. So um, looking at the conferences now, that would be New Orleans and then probably the Chiefs. Uh, if we got that as a Super Bowl, um, that'd be a great Super Bowl. If we got um, the if the Chiefs lose in Seattle on Sunday night and the Chargers uh, win that division, get the number one seed, uh, a famous Chargers Super Bowl would also be really fun. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of hoping for one of those. And I, I don't think... Um, that would surprise me. I, I do think the Saints should be the favorite uh, coming out of the NFC, even though they've looked kind of um, not themselves recently. Well, Ben, I'd like to thank you for joining us on uh, Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Ben Baldwin. Ben's an economist working in ed policy research. Uh, ben joined The Athletic after previously covering the Seahawks. Ben, again, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me. Love yep. the show, so it was great to be on. Thank you. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We have another guest at the 9 o'clock hour. Then Adi and I will be making our NFL picks. And with me still being alive in my Eliminator pool, there's a lot riding on it. So stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm with my co-host and friend, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, along with Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM Business Radio 132, powered by the Wharton School. And, of course, we're on iTunes, SoundCloud, and lots of other places. You can listen to our podcast. And just like many of our callers, uh, you can become one of them. We want you to join the show. Please call us if you have any questions, want to talk about sports, statistics, etc. at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Our producer, Matt Datz, is waiting for your call. You can also email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And I hope, even though uh, we're only here two hours live on Wednesday mornings, um, you can follow us on Twitter. I tweet quite often at our uh, at WMoneyBall. So please be a fan. Keep participating with Wharton Moneyball. So, Adi... Uh, we're fortunate. Matter of fact, we were just talking about analytics, and it's using by, used by coaches. Um, we're fortunate to have Rob Ash with us. Uh, Rob is coming back to the show. He's been on before. Rob works for a company called Championship Analytics. He's the director of coaching development, and the company works to obviously a very noble thing to integrate world class analytics with a coach's insight. They do work in the NFL, the Big Ten, the SEC, Pac twelve, ACC, and more. So, Rob, uh, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. Hi, Eric. Hi, Adi. Hey. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Rob. How are you? Great. Doing super. Great. So, um, could you, the first thing I always like to do with all of our guests, even though you're a returning guest, is um, before you got to championship analytics, because many of our listeners are, you know, both young people, but also people that want to get into analytics. So, can you tell us about your background and kind of how you got into the business? Well, I'm a career coach, 
and that's where I started. I, co- I coached for 41 years. I was a head coach for 36 years at three different schools, Juniata College in Pennsylvania for nine years. I was head coach at Drake University for 18 years and then head coach at Montana State for nine years, worked my way across the country. And uh, my last two years at Montana State, 2014, we uh, we ran into championship analytics. One of my assistant coaches, Jamie Marshall, who was my defensive coordinator, he ran into championship analytics at the AFCA convention. They had a booth there, just the two guys who had invented this algorithm that uh, they were using to help coaches with their in-game strategy decisions. And Jamie brought the materials to me. I looked at it, promptly threw it in the corner of my office and thought no more about it for about three or four months. And <laughs> then in the summertime, right before that season, uh, Mike McRoberts, who was our uh, president and founder for Championship Analytics, he made a trip out to Bozeman, Montana, and met with me. And we became one of the very first customers as a college football uh, program with Championship Analytics. There were only three teams in the country that year that were using the products. And uh, we used it that year. I fell in love with it. I felt like it would help me, could potentially help me win a, an extra game a year, maybe get maybe the difference between getting into the playoffs or not. And that turned out to be the case. I can explain that situation down the road if we have time. But anyway, it helped us. And so then I started promoting it to some of my colleagues in the coaching profession. And one thing led to another. About 15 teams signed up the next year. Uh, The following year, I uh, rerouted to Arkansas. I was an analyst at the University of Arkansas. And Coach Bielema decided to sign up for analytics. I brought that program with me to Arkansas and ran it for him there. So he was our first SEC school. By that time, we had a couple of Big Ten and, and Pac-12 teams. And um, used that. I was still coaching, but I was helping promote the program. And then in, after that season, uh, I decided to retire from active coaching, and Championship Analytics gave me an opportunity to flip over to the other side and work for the company. And so I've been doing that since uh, the end of the 2016 season. And we now have over 50 FBS clients, over 70 college clients. We have a couple NFL teams, and uh, the company's just grown like crazy. But I started on the other side. Now I'm working for the company. So, so how did you? So let me. So how did you make this? Not only make this transition, but how did you convince other teams? Because one of the things we talk about is the use of analytics isn't just about the math, but it's about culture. Mm-hmm. Well. I think it's, it was very compelling to other teams to know that I had used it myself as a coach. And, I mean, there's nothing better that I can say as a marketing person when I walk in the office and talk to Brian Kelly or Jim Harbaugh, you know, look, I used this. I was a head coach. I had a person who had the materials on the sidelines, and I got the communication during the game in real time and used that information to make the best possible decisions. And then – Bottom line is what I said earlier. It uh, it helps win that critical close game that's going to make the difference between a good season and a great season, or making a bowl or not making the bowl, or making the playoffs or not making the playoffs. And once coaches hear that, then they're very more much more interested in in talking. Plus, we have a good product. We have a very interesting, compelling product that people uh, find not only you know valuable and useful, but uh, 
easy to use. So, Rob, this is Adi. I was, I'm really interested in actually what this product looks like. And maybe you can unwind your, your history. It's three years ago. Or you're still a coach, and, mm-hmm. and no, you, you, got, you have it in the corner, and they, and they call you up, and they say, we want you to use this product. What exactly were they offering you? And, and uh, can you just give our listeners and us a good sense of what this product is and really in, in, in its fundamental level? I mean, we had a conversation earlier about some decision-making in the NFL where it's still terrible. And, when, and um, just give us a sense of, uh, you know, you know, brass tacks here. What does it do? Well, we've, we've grown by leaps and bounds in terms of our services, but the signature product for championship analytics is what we call our game book. And the game book is a set of charts, and it's still kind of old school because in college we can't use tablets on the sidelines or any electronic devices, so it's a three-ring binder. Picture this. I mean, today's <laughs> age, you know. You can't have a communications? You can't have anything in your ear to talk to someone, someone no. else? No, no, they can't use they can't use that type of material and advise coaches. So it works fine. It's a binder. It has three rings in it. It has um, tabs that correlate to different points in the game, the score of the game, the time of the game, and then each underneath each tab is a chart of the field, hundred yards of the field, and it has the yard line is the yard to gain for that particular series of downs. And then it tells you what the fourth down recommendation is on fourth and one, fourth and two, any yardage for that series of downs. So let's say you get a first down at the 50-yard line. It's the second quarter. It's a tie game. So you go to the tab for the second quarter for a tie game. Open the tab. There's a chart of the field. The ball was first down at the 50, so the yard to gain is a plus 40. So you find the column for the plus 40. And underneath that column, it says fourth and one is a go, fourth and two is a go, fourth and three is 50-50, and then fourth and four on down, you should punt. So on first down, our coaches know on fourth down what their decision should be. And then it goes from there. Some coaches accidentally get to fourth down. Some coaches intentionally try to get to a shorter fourth down if they know it's a go recommendation. I mean, various coaches use it in different ways. But the Ah, key for us is that on first down, the the you know, the play caller and the head coach know on first down what the fourth down recommendation is. So this means that uh, the quarterback knows and the coach knows this is a four-down uh, four sequence or a three-down sequence, and that makes a and, huge difference in how you plan. Right, uh, but the, the, the sophistication of it is very interesting. So let's just take a situation like a third and four, and, you know, in plus territory, you're at the plus 35 or something. A third and four, and fourth and two is going to be a, a go. So what do you do on third and four? If you throw the classic stick route to to the the chains, you know, on third and four, and it's complete, good, you got a first down. If it's incomplete, now it's fourth and four, and you're kind of stuck. You know, it's too far to really go for it. You might have to punt into a short field. It's too far for your field goal kicker to kick it. So you've blown an opportunity, okay? But if it's third and four and fourth and two or less is a go, and you run the football up inside and gain two yards, now you're in a manageable fourth down situation. Now you can go for it. So – you're not in four-down territory on third and four. You're only in four-down territory if you move the ball into four-down territory. Okay? Now, conversely, if it was fourth and two or less as a go and it's third and two, right now you're already in four-down territory. Now, if you want to, you can take a shot down the field, come back and go for it on fourth down. You can take two runs and try to get into it. Now you are in four-down territory, mm-hmm. unless you lose yardage on your third-down play, You know, in which case – you know, and then you might bounce yourself out of four-down territory. So one of the phrases that we ironically don't use very much is the phrase four-down territory because we don't know if we're going to go for it on fourth down or not until we see what the yardage is 
on fourth down. It makes a huge difference if it's fourth and one or fourth and eight, obviously. And one of the tenets of our whole system is that we're recommending that teams be aggressive, but we want teams to be aggressive when it makes mathematical sense, statistical sense. So fourth and one in, in FBS football, you have a 74% chance of success. Fourth and five in FBS football, you probably have a 35% chance of success. So we're here so we on, on our team. Yes, yeah, so I just wanted to reset here, Rob. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball talking to Coach Rob Ash. Uh, this is Eric Brado, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at, if you have a question for Coach Ash, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Rob is currently with Championship Analytics and the Director of Coaching Development. So, Rob, we were just discussing a play in the first half hour of the show that I'd love to get your opinion on. And I don't know how much NFL you get to watch now but because of your job and being busy, but here was the situation just in case you didn't know it, and I'd love to hear the championship analytics uh, you know, game book thought about this. Um, the Cleveland Browns were playing the Denver Broncos this weekend. The score was 17-13 to 13 Cleveland with 4 minutes and 39 seconds left in the game. The Broncos had the ball 4th and one at the Cleveland six-yard line, down 17-13, and they decided to kick the field goal. Now, the reason I bring this up to you, Coach Ash, is that this was just recently reported as the worst statistical decision ever made in the history of the NFL. And so how do you explain, given all we know about analytics today, about the work of championship analytics, how could a coach kick a field goal to still be down a point with four minutes left in the game and one timeout, fourth and one from the six. Any thoughts about this? <laughs> well, I, I don't want to make it personal here at all, but I, in, the, in the sense that, Coach, it's interesting. We work with lots and lots of coaches, and we see decisions, maybe not the worst statistical decision in the history of football, but we see decisions that, that make you shake your head pretty much every week. In fact, just as a quick aside, one of the new services, newer services that we now provide to our clients is we've compiled scenarios like the one you just described every week and send them to our clients with strategy decisions, good or bad, that have happened. And you'd be amazed. There are decisions that rival that one virtually every week, and there are many of them. And it's one of the pieces of our services that our clients enjoy the most because they can they can learn from these um, actual situations that come up. Now, obviously, if that uh, if they had been a client of ours, that, that would have been a solid green light, go for it on fourth and one. Uh, we rarely recommend kicking on, on pretty much any fourth and one inside the 50-yard line. Certainly, well, the, the ones you know, Rob, the, the the bot, if you will. I mean, the chart says fourth and one. You go for it anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing Basically, that is... Basically, yeah. Our, some of our uh, charts will go back you know, and, and, and say that. Depending on the game, there are certain games when the team is a heavy favorite in a low-scoring game. Yeah. Fourth and one on your own 25 is probably a very lighter recommendation. But if you're, you know, you're uh, going to be playing in a Big 12 game, <laughs> it's going to be 50 to 49. Or, or, or if you're a 20-point underdog in a game that's going to be high-scoring, it, it could be for go for it on your own 20. 15-yard line all game long. Could you talk about how uh, championship analytics kind of does its magic? So, for example, is it how much of it is done by what I'll call 
web scraping and big data technology where all of this data is coming into championship analytics? How much is still done by humans? You know, kind of, could you tell us, without giving away the secret sauce, kind of how is the company organized? Are you massively scalable? Because, you know, big data computing and automatic data collections available. How, how is your company working in that way? We're very small, and we work off an algorithm that our president and founder invented in his basement, working on his own personal computer with Excel spreadsheets, and he got it patented, and it's the, you know, it's the crux of our company now, the, the algorithm. We work very diligently every week to compile all the data from um, the, in preparation for the games, you know, the projected scores, the margin, the over-under, the, the weather, the kicker, kicker ratings, you know, all those kinds of things. And we put them into the computer, and it spits out the, uh, you know, the data for the book. Because so, we uh, hopefully made this clear earlier, but maybe not as well as I should have. We create a, a unique book for each team. That each was what week. I was going to. You just you just forecasted I, I, yeah. my question. I was going to ask you how the yeah. books. Could you tell us about how the books? Yeah. yeah. Could you tell us about yeah. how the books differ? It's for each yeah, matchup, it, so they take you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you're you on on Monday morning. I I sit down and I go through for each one of our teams. So I'll research the kickers and punters with the most up to date available statistics and we rank those kickers and punters i look up the weather report for philadelphia for the temple game um we look up vegas we use vegas the line for the game the over under and the projected uh, point totals and then we send all those settings to our team the team signs off on the settings sends it back to us and then we send the settings into the main office and the book is created for that week, so it's it's a different book based on the matchup for that week for every team. So it's it's quite um, labor intensive for us because we, you know, every every single team every week gets their own individual unique book. Could you also talk to us about um, do, are is championship analytics? Are you more proactive now, meaning you're constantly recommending new things to teams, or are you more, I don't call it reactive in a bad sense, but teams are coming to you and saying, Coach Ash, you know, it would be great for us to have the following in our game book. How, how, how does it work? Are you kind of more driving things downward, or are things requests coming from the bottom up? Oh, we're definitely driving downward. You know, our, our company theory is that we want to give coaches tools that they can use you know, proactively in games in real time to make the correct decision to help them win games as they go along. I mean, that's that's our entire mantra. You know, we don't we don't want to be an analytics company that you know just provides you with a mountain of data to review after a game or to review before a game and in a scouting report fashion. We we want to be involved. You know, each team uh, that we work with has a. a person on the sidelines that we affectionately call the book guy you know and the book guy has the materials and we've expanded from just fourth down decisions to timeout usage we have an amazing two-point chart that's very intriguing uh, onside kick recommendations penalty accept decline um just a number of things that, and they're all in chart form all included with the book every week and we clearly want to be involved in the decision-making process uh, four game, four teams during games so that they can make the best decisions. So, Bob, this is Adi Weiner again. I'm really interested in this product, um, but I'm, in particular, we were talking earlier about one of the um, utilities 
ideas that undergirds why a coach makes decisions that are bad. Do you ever go back to your to your to your coaches and say, okay, that these are the decisions you made, and these are the ones that are in the book. Here's here's the times you didn't do what's in the book. Maybe we can look at that and then try to understand why you didn't do that, and maybe we can get you to do that. In other words. Do you go back and try to convince your coaches to actually follow what's in the recommendations? I imagine they still don't. Well, there are two parts to that question, and I'll answer them both. The first one is we absolutely do go back to our coaches. Um, we provide every team every week with what we call a post-game report. Mm-hmm. We have generate a spreadsheet that has all of their third and fourth down decisions, all of their timeout decisions, all their two-point decisions what they actually did in the game, what the book or the charts would have recommended for that decision, and whether we agree or not with the decision that they made in real time. So uh, Coach Bielema at Arkansas used to call it his report card. So (laughs) every Sunday you get your report card. And we have, you know, we make it real easy for the coaches. There's red boxes, green boxes, and yellow boxes. And red boxes mean decisions that we disagreed with. Green we agreed, and yellow was kind of in that. 50-50 50-50 area. And, um, you know, one of our coaches used to say to his book guy uh, on uh, Monday morning, well, did the book like me this week or not? You know, I mean, so they're, they're very – coaches want some feedback. And think about it. Who's really evaluating the head coach in college football? I mean, from a staffing standpoint, you know, maybe the athletic director to a certain extent, but likely not. He's probably off to the side – and certainly the media and the fans make their winning you know, <laughs> yeah, winning exactly winning so i mean some of our very sharp assistant coaches are are excited to have a tool that comes from the outside that gives the head coach uh, some feedback you know from a from a, and our our feedback is very objective we we're not guessing i mean we're saying hey the math said do this and you did that and so it's it's not personal it's not guesswork it's not emotional it's simply what the math recommends and then your second part of your question do coaches follow it no not faithfully some of our best coaches do um army is our star client they they work at the best of any team in the country but um you know a lot of coaches um just still buy into the old you know we were taught when i was i've coached a long time we were taught a couple of things one is uh, take the points you know, the, the old uh, down in the red zone feel, always take the points. And the other one was field position wins games, and so you always kick, you know, when it's fourth down. I mean, that's just what we learned when we learned the game years before analytics was ever a word. And uh, there are still coaches who abide by that philosophy. There are still commentators, plenty of them out there, who don't have a clue about the analytics, and they, they advocate some of these old um, traditions in football, which are totally wrong from an analytic standpoint, but they still from a football standpoint. Let's let's not let's yeah. not cover this up. We're trying to win yeah. games here. <laughs> I know, I know. But, and it's it's just amazing to me. You know, the the every fourth down to the the second guessing is what really catches you up because you, you know you do the right thing, go for it on fourth and one at the fifty yard line, and you miss. And now the commentators are all over your case. Yep. And everybody else, but if you make it. 
They forget that about decision, it. Yeah, that, that just goes by the boards. It's that in, within two minutes, that decision is gone and not thought about for the rest of the game. That, that's the just, asymmetry. We called yeah. that earlier. Yeah, so we're here yeah. on we're here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Rob Ash, Rob is uh, at, with Championship Analytics, the Director of Coaching Development. If you want to call in, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I should point out for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, between Rob Ash Myself, Eric Bradlow, and Adi Weiner, we have 246 career coaching wins. And so um, a couple of us have zero, yep, and, yep. but the other person has 246. <laughs> I've coached a couple Little League games. <laughs> yeah, but we're not counting those. We're actually talking about real coaching victories for Coach Ash here. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, you just mentioned Army, and that, that was going to be my theory, but you, I just want to expand on this. Um, one of the people I interviewed a number of years ago, not on Wharton Moneyball, uh, was a guy named Gary Loveman, who took over Caesars Entertainment Worldwide. And, you know, if you've ever been to Las Vegas, Caesars has a decent casino, but not one of the brand new glitzy ones. And his comment was, well, I have a $200 million building. They have a $2 billion building. I have to compete on analytics because I don't have as good a building. Let me now make the analogy to football. You just mentioned Army. Army's a good football team, but they're not you know, Arkansas, they're not Alabama, etc. Do you find that teams, and, and nothing, I mean, you were at Montana State, you're not, you know, in the SEC, you're not in, you know, you're not Alabama. Do you find that teams that are very good teams, but that want to do better, are your best clients? Because in some sense, you have a $200 million building, not a $2 billion building, and so you need analytics to get the edge. You can't, you're not going to get all, it's Moneyball. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get all five-star recruits. You're the Oakland A's. Yeah, absolutely. That is 100% one of our uh, profiles that is very common. You know, is that up-and-coming team, the, the team that's got a, a sharp, savvy coaching staff, and maybe they understand they don't have quite the same personnel as their opponents, and they want, they're want they looking for an edge. And, you know, that we always, on the same token, I'd like to say, we could be very useful to the Alabamas and Georgias and Notre Dames of the world also. I mean, because there are games when they're going to play against that team. They've got their $2 billion building, and so does the other team. So now how do you get an edge in that matchup? And so I think we're useful to that kind of team as well. Do you have any Ivy League clients? Several. Oh, good. All right. That sounds great. So we actually we have a caller here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we have Jay from California. Uh, Jay, you're on the line with Eric Bradlow and Adi Weiner. And, of course, we're, you're here with our guest, Coach Rob Ash of Championship Analytics. How can we help you this morning? Uh, hi guys, uh, Coach Ash, uh, Grizz alumni here, so uh, can't speak to the Montana State part. But um, I understand you guys are talking about uh, mostly down and distance and when to go and not to go. But does the product give play calling advice as well as to what to run in certain situations? Actually, no. One of the things that we're very staunch about is that we are not involved with scheme. Uh, we are not going to tell a team when it's fourth and one whether they should run or pass or how they should go for it, what they should run. That is not part of our um, sphere of, you know, recommendations. It's completely up to the team. In fact, uh, when I was at Montana State in 2015, we went for it 38 times on fourth down, which was one of the highest numbers in college football that year. But five of those times that we went for it were fake kicks. So, it was in a go situation, and that's just how we decided to go for it. So we line up for the field goal on fourth and one and stake the field goal and, and so forth. So, But that doesn't matter to us as a company. If that's how the, the team feels that they have the best chance to, to convert, then that's the play that they should run. 
Yeah, I love that analogy, which is you're telling them to go, but in some sense you're giving them the freedom to say, well, you know your team best. You know, yeah. you know how to kind of implement that fourth Absolutely. and one. So we have another Absolutely. call. Yeah, we have another caller, Jerry from Chicago. Uh, Jerry, this is Eric Bradlow and Adi Weiner. You're here with Coach Rob Ash of Championship Analytics. How can we help you this morning, Jerry? Hey, good morning. This is Gary from uh, Chicago. Um, <clears throat> actually, three questions. One is, is this something like this scalable at the high school level? We do have a few high school clients. Yes, it, it does work very well with high schools. We have a we had a very successful Texas playoff team this year. Um, we've had a few good high school clients. It's a little pricey for high school budgets, which is the, probably the only the big the biggest drawback. Okay, and then uh, can you talk about a situation where uh, following the advice was a uh, failure, uh, and when following the advice was a great success. Well, it, that's failure and success is interesting. So the because the advice is what it is. I mean, it, it's fourth and one, and you're going to have a seventy four percent chance to make to make it, and you go for it and miss. Is that a failure? Yeah, it's a failure in execution, but it's also predictable. You're it, going it, to miss 25% of the time. It's so, not a failure in uh, decision-making, and it's what's very interesting. It's not a failure in, in decision-making. And what's, right. what's really interesting to us is that the public does what we call resulting. I actually learned that word from Annie Duke when she was on our show. Um, this idea that you look at the decision and the and you look at the result, and that, that, that reflects back on the decision-making. And that's exactly the wrong thing to think. You can't look, look at a, a probabilistic outcome and say, well, I, I worked out, and therefore I made a good decision if, if that in general is a bad decision and so you actually this is the the job of championship analytics and your job uh, coach ash is to get people away from just making uh, judging the quality of your decisions based on the outcome and one of the one of the most frequent ones of those that we see is uh, is the midfield punt that is downed at the one yard line and the thought process is oh well that was the right decision to punt because we downed the ball at the one yard line well it's probably less likely to down the ball at the one-yard line than it would have been to make the fourth and one. But yeah, absolutely. If that happened, then people think they did the right thing by punting. And we really do, you're right on the money there, we really do try to try to, uh, you know, work with our coaches to, to make them understand that the result of the next play has nothing to do with the, the right or wrongness or the quality of their decision on the previous play. So, Coach Ash, just one last question. And again, thank you, Jerry, from Chicago for your questions for Coach Ash. Um, can you talk about if we were to have – well, we will, we hope, to have you back on next year, three years, five years from now. What will we be talking about that Championship Analytics is doing? Like, what's what's the future? What are you guys working on today that has you excited? You know, I, I will still be doing – hopefully we'll have uh, – the majority of of all the college teams and many NFL teams involved with our products, uh, we're working now with um, statistics platforms, trying to find new and better and more accurate ways of describing the statistical performance of teams and games. So, you know, some of the phrases we believe much more in a statistic called down series success rate instead of time of possession. And everybody talks about time of possession, which to us is a very worthless statistic um, because the difference in time with a team that's running the ball compared to a passing team is so dramatic and so forth. Whereas down series success rate tells us 
how many times you moved the chains compared to how many times you started a series of downs, which is much more accurate in terms of describing your ability to control the game and keep the ball away from the other from the other team. You know, points per possession instead of overall points. Um, havoc rate on defense instead of just how many sacks you have. Um, so we're trying to create, we are in the process of creating a statistical platform that will be much more beneficial to teams than what they currently, the data that they currently use. Well, Rob, uh, first of all, we wanted to thank you. First, congratulations on your extremely successful coaching career. Uh, congratulations thank on you. your, in some sense, transitioning to a role in analytics. Um, it's really a remarkable story. Um, so we've been talking to Rob Ash of Championship Analytics, Director of Coaching Development, uh, former coach at Montana State. Um, again, we'd like to thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. It's been a lot of fun talking with you guys. I hope it's yeah. been valuable to the listeners, and I'd be happy to come back on any time, although it is early for me. I'm in California, so you guys made me get up early this morning. Oh, we you? sure did. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> well, no problem at all. Well, thank you for joining us. So this has been the first three quarters of What in Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go, or Moneyball matchups. I got a lot of NBA stuff, so stay with us and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Should I stay or should I go? I'm hoping all of our listeners decided to stay here on Wharton Moneyball for the last half hour of the show. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. Some combination of myself, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed on iTunes, SoundCloud, and replayed throughout the week here on Sirius XM 132. We've had a great show with callers. Let's keep it up for the last half hour. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at any time at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, we hope you follow us on Twitter and tweet at us at at WMoneyball. So, Adi, we just had Coach Ash on from Championship Analytics. He was talking about his transition from coaching to a consumer of analytics while he was still coaching to then working for a company around analytics. What struck you about what I thought was a fascinating conversation with Coach Ash? Well, first of all, it seems like it's the complete picture. So it starts with presenting to the coaches the actual book. He calls it the book, right? Which allows you to break down every play situation and tell you what the right decision is. Really, it's really mostly about fourth downs, but it's also about uh, punting and kicking. Um, Penalty, penalties, about. things like that. We, we didn't really discuss those. And he also described how they go back to the coach and explain what they did, this whole, this whole report card, your, your how'd you do, and, and, and that helps really change behaviors. And then finally, we got with the caller in particular, we managed to connect this idea or separate the, the idea of decision-making from the out- outcome. And in fact, the outcome really has nothing to do with the decision-making going forward. I mean, you, you do need outcomes to help decide what you're capable of, right? So if you can never convert the fourth and down, fourth and one because your team just doesn't do that very well or maybe does it extremely well, that, of course, affects the decision-making. But it's not the outcome that you look at. It's the decision at the time, the data that's available to you at the time of the decision that's mattered and not the result result of that play. Right. And just to reinforce the thing that we opened the show with, the criticism of Vance Joseph is nothing to do with the outcome of which they happen to make the field goal. It doesn't matter. It was the decision he made that lowered the win probability by the largest amount. That's what we were talking about. Not that's the, right. It's, the play hadn't even been run yet, and he made the wrong decision. That's what we're talking about here. And that's a big issue to separate. And, you know, the point is, even if they had come back and won the game, 
It's still the wrong decision. It's still the wrong decision. It's still the wrong decision. But also decision. this concept that that um, the traditions that the coaches were taught. It's nice to hear from a coach and say it. Well, we were always taught that, uh, you know, field position matters um, not as much as it, take you think points. it is. Take the points, right? No, no, don't take the points. I'll take seven over three. By the way, in some level, you'll take seven over three. I'll it, take, it, like an NBA, I'll take three, three over, over two. two. It's what connects. Actually, if you think back to basketball, and I know we might want to talk about some basketball, what was the reluctance to take to do the three-point shot because of take the points. Two points at 50% is an expected value of one. Three-pointer three at 33% is it one. Is also one, but people didn't understand that it's that the leverage on that is actually enormous. So if you can get your, your, your three-point shot from 33% up to 38%, that's 1. a multiplier 1. by three. Exactly. Now you're at one point one four, which means you have to shoot fifty seven percent from the two, which only the centers who basically dunk the ball They're each right. time ever are, shoot are able to do. And so they they really realize that smaller improvements on the three point shot lead to bigger imp- total points and expectation. And that's why we see this this dramatic change in the three point. In fact, there was a really interesting article that uh, that our producer Matt Dats pointed us to about LeBron, how he's now become a thir- he's now shooting thirty seven percent from the three, from, which from is three, remarkable. Which which is remarkable, which is, I mean, Steph Curry does 41. I mean, this year he's at 49, but he'll, he'll shrink back down. Um, that's, that's moving to elite range. Right. So actually, before we leave the NBA, and I know we have one other interesting topic to talk I about, with just me and you. <laughs> um, does it mean anything to you? You know, I just looked last night at the point differential in the NBA, which is actually not about, like, how many points do you score per game minus how many points do you give up? Obviously, you can rank all 32 teams uh, based on this. Um how or 30, 30 NBA teams. How do you think, by the way, the Warriors rank right now in point differential? How, oh, well, I would guess they are. They're not having the... T- they've been having, by the way, the last four or five years, they've been the top oh, team 11 by a to match, 12. 11 to yeah, 12. Enormous. Right. Um, and by the way, we're 30 games into the season, so we're not... And in basketball, that's that's probably enough to decide the champion. So where do you think where do you think they are? I would guess they're not at number one anymore. Right. I would say they're probably four or five. They're at number seven, okay. and their differential's down to plus 5.4. So That's seven. Well, I'm starting to ask you. I actually you, thought you the seven starting, would have been are you, closer to the top. Yeah. Are you starting to believe now maybe all these people that say it's a done deal, that the Warriors are in the finals and are going to win again? Are you, is some statistical doubt based on some evidence starting to creep into your mind? Well, it has to be. I mean, particularly if you have the idea that 30 games is a lot. On the other hand, and you, you I've learned this from you, Eric, the playoffs in this regular totally season different. are totally different. And, and you know, we used to say LeBron just loafs through the regular season and then he just turns it on at the end. And, and is that true for a team like the Warriors as well? Who've had tremendous injuries. Remember, Curry was right. out for a while. Draymond Green was out. They've basically not had their big exactly. four for much of and, the and, season and at I, all. I think when they put them all together, they're extremely effective when you, when you divide them up. Up. They're they're not uh, less than the replacement part in the traditional additive sense. They kind of fall apart multiplicatively, and um, so I think that we don't. Re- I, I'm still putting money on Warriors, and, and me too. And and I just think you should just too. one last stat from the NBA before we move on to a different sport, esports. Um, still today, only five games separate the top ten teams in the West. So to show you, a team that's in tenth place could go on an eight and two, nine and one streak, which does which happens not that. Just you know, fairly often enough, and they could move from ten to three in like a week. So the Western Conference in the NBA is remarkably bunched up, literally bunched up. from yep. nine losses at the top to fourteen in the ten spot. 
And so it's just remarkable. That's nothing. It's nothing. Yeah. It's nothing. But the, the NBA is in, ge- in general remarkable. I was just looking at the at the home and away differentials. You, I've never seen anything quite like it. I mean, it, it usually in the NBA the the, the home w- team wins about fifty eight percent of the time, which is huge. It's it's the, the biggest advantage in the professional sport Absolutely. arena. Um, I think football is fairly close to it, by the way, and then hockey and then baseball is at the bottom. But if you look at it now, it's much more than that. I mean, much the, much more. The, the, the Sixers can't lose at home. And and uh, although they've lost a couple recently, lost a couple, but, but yes, but the differentials are huge. And they're not just oh, they're like at eighty five yeah. to ninety percent at and home, that seems and to barely be and the board. maybe slightly below fifty percent yeah. on the road, which is not surprising. So you know, maybe we'll spend five or ten minutes here. Um, I know you've been spending a lot of time thinking about something that we could debate whether it's sports or not, but esports. So maybe just tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball what is esports and what you've been looking at. All right. So this is a is a growing industry, and it's something that here in our on, in the studio we have for the most part ignored, which essentially our team competitions. So they're not just, you know, playing Donkey Kong at home. Um, this is team competitive sports, um, but it's all a video game. It's not actual athletic competition. So the, the players sit with the headphones and uh, at, at terminals, and the action is broadcast on a giant screen filled. I mean, you can do this. You can watch well, it remotely. It, they've had it at the Wells Fargo. 20,000 people. Right. I mean, and, and but the, the, the business side of this is what's gotten our attention. It's enormously profitable and big business in the billions of dollars. It's still not as big as, uh, as traditional sports, but the, but the acceleration and the velocity scores on these things are enormous. And that's just my fancy way of saying this is a growing business and it's growing faster than you can imagine. So what, as you as a status Statistician, what have you been interested in? What have you been looking at? Well, one of the things that I'm I'm interested in. There's two levels of this, and and one is the projection side, and the other is the statistic side. From the analytics side, which of course interests all of us, this is a sport, if you would, if you want to give it the moniker, where data is can be captured at the most most granular every, level. Every I mean, click, every, every click, movement. every movement. So in some sense, it's, it's, it'll offer us the, the capacity to do something that we've never been able to do with traditional sports because the measurement is so intricate and, and essentially is infinite measurement. Um, no one, of course, has done anything with this. So you're looking at a complete blank slate. No one has, or I shouldn't say no one. There has been some uh, an attempt to, to create aggregate statistics for some of the, the competitions. But the second level is, you know, should we be looking... The, at this, and the third, I mean, moving forward is what kind of sport is it, or is it a sport at all? Well, I mean, I was going to, I'm just going to relate to something you mentioned earlier in the show. So, just for our listeners that haven't listened to the whole show, we hope you have. Um, Adi mentions about the uh, Adam Odovino and Babe Ruth situation, and you talked about Babe Ruth going to Columbia and being tested on all these dimensions. Why can't we do the same? I and mean, we should do the same for esports. You mentioned Babe Ruth had amazing reflex speed. He had he had a, he had a trifecta. No, well, of, maybe. Of, uh, yeah. So maybe that's what it takes to be successful in esports. Maybe it's someone with, uh, you know, they would say Ted Williams had twenty fifteen vision. Twenty ten. Twenty ten. Maybe it's someone with fast hand-eye coordination. Do you see that becoming a big part of esports, just like you talked about with Babe Ruth and Adam Odovino's well, story? Well, it already is. I mean, I've already talked to, to people who own teams, and the way this works, believe it or not, this is how it works. You essentially put out a, 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 a call, and, and you, uh, you, you, people send you their, their, their performances, which you can watch. There's, there's ways to store them and watch them. And then, and then they bring them into, the, into the, the, the training center, and they basically measure you. For a reaction time, and and the ones who are who are the best are the ones that they take into the program and and then train. And one of the things that's interesting we haven't mentioned this on our show before is you're pretty much washed up by age twenty two, 
because the unbelievable differences that you really your your reaction times drop as you get older and by the time you're 22 23 you're not competitive anymore and which is which is by Remarkable. the way which is something that i think in some level sinks esport as a sport because there's no sport where wisdom can't overcome the loss of physical attributes at we, some level at some level i mean so we're looking at i mean why does someone like tom brady um continue to perform at this high level year after year his body is breaking down like everybody's body does but what's gained in wisdom is overcompensating is compensating and overcompensating for the loss in physical attributes we're not seeing that in the esport at all and that that get, makes me wonder what its ultimate future and the question that i ask that i'd like to ask you here in the studio and our listeners overall is why do we watch sports? And do the same reasons that we watch sports, will they carry over to eSports? So, and I think that's the, the fundamental question that we have to ask if we want to predict what's going to happen with eSports. Will colleges have eSports teams? Will there be professional leagues that, that people watch on TV? Or, or is it just going to be esoteria? Well, let me just say the following. Um, you're almost sounding like a marketing professor there. That's what we think about in marketing <laughs> wow. all the time. What drives product? You've rubbed up on it. Yeah, <laughs> here we go. Well, what drives product demand? <laughs> and what are the sources of utility people get from products and services? And, you know, one of the things we could try to understand for eSports is which components of the experience add the most to people's adoption of it. Is it the, you know, the big screen? Is it people commentator? Is it the type of action that's going on? Does someone have to have played esports to actually be able to enjoy it? I know for sports, for me, you know, I was a, you know, in the general scheme of things, a very moderate athlete. You know, I guess you play tennis, you play basketball. I play every sport at some mediocre Mm -hmm. level. And so I can appreciate, wow, Look at that game that Roger Federer's play. Like, oh my God, look at the way Tiger Woods is doing. Look at the way Ronaldo is kicking the soccer ball. You know, look at the way, you know, I basically every sport I can, I have such an, look at the skier, look at Monica, you know, Schifrin, look at how she's winning all of these uh, different downhill races because I was skied a lot. I have such an appreciation for it because I know how hard it is even to be adequate at some of these sports. Esports for me, would be hard for me because I, I would have no appreciation, no appreciation for no, the upper, if you like, the right tail of the distribution because I don't really know even what the center of the distribution looks like. Can you even like. follow it? I mean, I've walked in on esports uh, competitions, on, on video games taking place, and to me it just looks like chaos, which leads me to believe that if you're not a player, you really aren't going to be enjoying it. And uh, so, therefore, what's, what is the market in esports? Is it is it something that that the the players of the game, which is millions of people, go to just watch the people who are better than they are? So, just to give you some data, thanks to our producer as well as always, Matt Datz. Um, apparently, there's a visual reaction test, which may be similar to the one that Babe Ruth took at Columbia all those yep. years ago. So, I'm going to give you some data. NHL goalies on this reaction test: 255 milliseconds. NBA: 279. So worse. MLB, top 1%, 281. Competitive gamers, 287. NFL, 309. So the fastest is appears to be NHL goalies. Amazing. Which is amazing. But I'm just saying, it's interesting, thanks to our producer, Matt, uh, average of 17 to 28-year-olds, 321 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. This is interesting. Average of 29 to 52-year-olds. Hey, you and I are still in that range. Mm-hmm. 325. You haven't lost it. We haven't lost that much, but you know, in two years, we're done. I think you and I we're are toast. done. We're toast. We're toast. We're toast. <laughs> but either way, it, uh, we're inter- I'm interested These are very to hear, interesting conversations. as we move forward yeah. in 2019 and beyond, and we're really interested to hear on your work on esports. Well, of course, Adi, 
This is that time of the show where we get to talk about the NFL and the upcoming games. Moneyball matchups. I always like to have that music play for a few seconds, but Adi, the bad news this week is we actually have to wait till Saturday for NFL games. There are no Thursday NFL games come week 16 of the season, but coming Saturday there will be some games. Um, anything, any of the games particularly caught your eye? Because there are some games this week that just have massive playoff implications. Any of them catch your eye? Well, of course, I'm interested in the ones that have massive playoff implications. I'm certainly interested in the in the Eagles game because uh, if they don't win out, they have absolutely no chance. And I think even if they do win out, I don't think they have much of a chance. Well, they have some of a chance. So right, what they something have, has to happen. What, yeah, what has so this to happen? Is, this is basically what has to happen. So the Eagles are seven and seven right now. If they win out, they go to a nine and seven. Okay, they can they can't win the division right unless lost. Dallas loses out. So they can't tie with Dallas. And Dallas is who's Dallas Eight, playing? Dallas is well. Dallas this Tampa week Bay. is playing Tampa Bay, so right. that's not Heavily looking favored. good. So Dallas Eagles are not going to win the division now. For them to make the playoffs, if they win out and get to nine wins, the team they really have to focus on is the Minnesota Vikings, that are seven six and one. The Vikings, if they win out, last time I checked, nine six and one is better than nine and seven. So the Eagles would not get that playoff spot. The Seattle Seahawks are eight and six, but Seattle has a better conference record than the Eagles. And so if Seattle goes one and one and they're nine and seven and the Eagles nine and seven, Seattle would go. So the Eagles basically to make the playoffs, they have to win out and hope that the Vikings go one and one. Now the Vikings this week have a fairly easy game at Detroit. Not or a- Seattle can lose two games. That could happen, too. No, Seattle's playing Kansas City. Yeah, but then they're home to the Cardinals uh, the following week. So Seattle's going to win that game. But the good <laughs> news is the Vikings are at uh, are home, but they're home to the Bears the following week of the season. Right. And that's a game that the Bears possibly are going to win, need to win to make to the two seed. So if the Minnesota goes 1-1... One and, one and, and we go 2-0, oh, 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 we will we go. Win. And we that's would. probably the best angle. Now, so if you ask me for the matchup, I also would pick the Eagles because... Um, Eagles are playing just. A, they're, they're playing they're, the Texans this week. They're, they're Texans, and I think this is this leads back to our our, our conversation earlier about uh, ranking all the quarterbacks. And Foles is just mysterious. I mean, I mean, I just love the comment we had. It's like on paper, Foles should never have done what he did in the playoffs or in the games earlier in the season or in yesterday's or, or I mean Sunday's game. And how many of these mysterious performances do you have to have before you correctly update or or update at all your your quarterback? performance. Now, what's interesting about his performance in the last game is, let me just say a couple things. Um, they did win the game. He had a great completion percentage, threw for no touchdowns, and threw actually a really bad interception at the near the end of the game that could have easily cost the Eagles the game. So the advance, I mean, his, what's interesting is his regular season performance record is actually not very good. As a matter of fact, um, uh, ben was even talking about our, our our guest at the eight thirty hour was even talking about the fact that Nick ben Foles Baldwin. yeah yeah that Nick Foles's performance in the regular season going into that's why everyone thought the Eagles were done going into the playoffs because he didn't perform well in the no. regular season last year and that year. was a, with a very strong team and that was with support, a very yeah. very strong team so that's the game well there's two games that caught my eye the first one is not for the reason you think. And actually, the spread listed here in front of us, minus 14, I've seen spreads as large as 15, but I want to say why that game, the Rams at Arizona, caught my eye. So I've said this uh, statistics before in Morton, statistic before in Morton Moneyball. 23 consecutive games, 
where a team has been favored by more than 14 points, they have not covered the not Vegas cover. spread. So, I'm just saying hypothetically. Sounds like a good were, bet. If we're one to bet on football. If one, hypothetically. If, if hypothetically, one, who would do that? Who right. would do that? But hypothetically. Sounds like it's legal. Right. Well, it's legal. <laughs> it in is Obama legal. States, I know. Actually, it is legal. <laughs> exactly. Um, one could absolutely think of taking the Arizona Cardinals and taking the 14 and a half points. I know it sounds crazy, but let's, by the way, let's just point this. There are more than 14 point underdog at home. Mm-hmm. So they're the home team. So imagine what the strength would be. You know, and one would argue that in the professional sports there shouldn't be that big a gap. That's essentially a seventeen point differential in kind of true talent if you adjust for the home field advantage, and that's enormous. It's an enormous. And the Arizona and Cardinals way, may not be that good, but there's still a bunch of professional and not only players. That, um, in like two of the last three games, the Rams haven't even scored seventeen points. Yes. So their you know their their offense, and now of course the other game that caught my eye. Is, is just something fascinating is happening in the NFL this season. And that's this team, the L.A. Chargers. And let me say why it's fascinating. I feel so bad in some ways for Phillip Rivers. And, and I say this only for the following reason. In the year that they're really, really, really good, they may go 13-3, and three, end up second in their division, and the number five seed. And that means they play all their games on the road. That is correct. Wow. And so the point I feel bad about is because... They, again, they may be the second-best team by all advanced metrics. They're the second-best team maybe in football, the third-best. But they happen to be behind the Kansas City Chiefs. And so it may turn out that they end up with the second-best record but the five-seed. So that game, by the way, Chargers-Ravens. Means a lot. It's huge because the Ravens are fighting for their playoff live. And the Ravens are behind the Steelers right now. And so that game has huge playoff implications. And that's a game, you know, it's, I hate to call it, it's what do they call it? I forget the expression, the, the, the unstoppable force versus the The immovable immovable object. Or the, uh, the the Chargers are thought of as having a great offense and Baltimore has a tremendous defense. defense. So so what do you do? So in general, what do you pick? Offense over defense? Oh, I oh, always way around. defense. 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 And by the way, let me just say one stat in our last uh, minute here. Just to give you a stat, the Bears and Chiefs have the same plus-minus this year. Most people wouldn't have guessed that. Plus 119. Except the Bears have given up 119 less points. The Chiefs have scored 119 more points. So if you ha- if the Bears played the Chiefs right now, suppose that's the Super Bowl. Are you? T- they have the same plus minus, so I've equalized. Okay, which are you taking? Are you taking the team that gave up 119 less points, or the team that scored 119 it, more? It's less, and the reason why is the right answer is not the differential. It's a differential divided by the sum. Okay, and once you do that, you find the defense is the right one. So it's the Bears. Oh, you yes. are taking oh, the Bears. Yes. I am. I, I do notice. I have one one more team. The Jets are favored over Green Bay. That can't be. Well, it can be. It can be. The Jets are favored? I guess. Over a team that's not bad? It's not even clear Aaron Rodgers is going to play uh, out that, there. Is it's, that the real issue? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, right. well, this has been another, you know, two hours here on Morton Moneyball. Of course, this is our last show of the 2018 year, so we have lots of people to thank. Uh, let's start with uh, thanking, uh, of course, I'll thank Adi Weiner, my co-host this morning. Of course, we'll thank Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, who are not here today, but all four of us will be back. 
ready to go in 2019. I'd like to spend a few minutes, a few seconds here t- thanking our producer, Matt Datz, for all the excellent work that he's done with us. It's uh, While we get to be on the air, Matt is putting amazing things up on the screen here to help us do the show. Uh, of course, Danielle Bruno, who's our normal associate producer and sound engineer, we'd like to thank, of course, our pinch hitter who started the show with us five years ago almost now, uh, Dion Simpkins. Thank you for stepping in today. And so um, it's been a great 2018 in sports. We hope you love sports and analytics as much as we do here on Wharton Moneyball. We're excited for a great 2019. Thank you for a great year, and we'll talk to you soon here on Wharton Moneyball. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.